Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 through 24 reads, Give the light where I can see. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their roots will be, will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. This is God's word. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. And God, we don't come uh, to your word this morning as empty spectators. But Lord, we ask that you would dramatically and, and forever impact our lives by your word today. We pray that it would read us, that it would, it would examine us, Lord God, and we would stand ready before you to um, repent and conform our, our lives to your ways, Lord. We just ask you to uh, show up in power, God, and let us have a mighty experience this morning of what it means to sit in the presence of your eternal word. And God, that's a, that's a huge burden for me to carry to, to uh, preach that word accurately and fully, Lord God, and, and in a way that, that you have uh, commanded. And so, Lord, I ask for your help. I come before you uh, in full confession of my weakness. And I ask you now, Lord, to strengthen me to be able to rightly divide the word of God in front of your people. And so, Lord, I, I, I just thank you for the, for the uh, equipping that you're already doing in my heart, in my mind. And, Lord, I, I just I thank you for the result that's going to be uh, given at the end of this message. And so I thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So last week, uh, you may remember that we talked about parameters, boundaries. We talked about the parameters of how believers in the Lord Jesus should approach making assessments of other people. Um, We talked about, um, or another way to say this would be, how are Christians to judge? Now, when I say that, some of you who maybe weren't here last week, you already just cringe just a little bit when I say how are Christians to judge. Because you are well aware, rightfully so, of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, that we, we talked about last week that are shouted at us oftentimes from the culture around us, sometimes voices within the church. And those words tell us that we shouldn't judge anyone. And we, we, we interpret that, that we shouldn't judge anybody ever at all, because Christ said, judge not that you be not judged. And no one can, not, can deny that that is what the scriptures say. However, we also discovered last week 
that just a couple verses later, and it comprised of the next, say, four or five verses, that Christ's point is made clear. He, what he's saying is that we shouldn't judge others using ourselves as the standard or the model of perfection. Remember, he said, how can you notice that tiny little itty-bitty speck in your brother's eye while you're walking around with a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye socket? And so we don't use ourselves as the model and, and it, because if we do that, all we're doing is we're grading all of life on a curve and, and our goal is, is to not be as bad as someone else and a little better than someone else. That, that we're, we're, you know, just, just better than the next guy or girl is sufficient. But elsewhere, in the, what, what complicates this whole matter of judging others is that elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus actually tells us, do not judge by appearances, but watch this, but judge with right judgment. So how on earth are we to do that? So to judge with right judgment, what is the standard to use when it's necessary to make a judgment, to make an assessment, to decide? And we talked about that last week. Only the Word of God is objective enough to be the standard for judgment. Do we all agree? Five of you do. That is awesome. I'm going to work on the other, you know, however many of you are here this morning. Do we agree that the Word of God is the only objective standard wherewith we can make assessments of all of life? Getting a little bit better. Y'all are thinking Labor Day this morning. Only the Word of God is objective enough to be our standard. And why is that? Because everything else changes. Everything else is subject to either our our preferences or our traditions. Isaiah chapter 40 lines this out so perfectly. It says this, it says, All flesh, and when it says flesh there, it's talking about things that are human, things that are worldly. It says, All flesh is grass. It compares it to just grass, blades of grass growing in a field. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. How so? The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Everything human, everything earthly withers, it fades. But watch this, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand Forever. We also discussed, when we talk about the Word being the only objective standard, we talked last week about how sadly, and it's very sad, that people with agenda-driven preferences can take a scripture completely out of context and weaponize it against brothers and sisters with whom they might disagree on finer points of doctrine. Happens all the time. And Paul even talked about this in a couple of places in Scripture. He talked about people who disagree disagreeably. You ever met anybody like that? People who disagree disagreeably about the issue of eating meat offered to idols or of on which day to worship. In our day, we're probably not going to run into those things as often, but what we do run into are, are other problematic issues. The problematic issues in our 
you know, realm, our life, the, the churches that we attend might be the worship style. Music's too loud, music's too soft. We might run into problems with the use of the spiritual gifts. We might run into problems with the mode of baptism, the way people baptize other people. We might even have a problem with a particular style of church government. But, but it's important for us when we run into those differences that Paul, to remember that Paul taught us That when it comes to issues, any issue that is not specifically or clearly addressed in Scripture, that there ought to be liberty for other believers. I want to let you all in on a secret now. i got to make you promise. You may need to shut off the Facebook feed, shut off the recording, because I don't want you all to know this. This church is not perfect. Do not run out of here and start telling people that. It will ruin our business. So don't tell people that. But this church is not perfect. We have not figured everything out. And there, and more than that, there are brothers and sisters worshiping the same God with the same love for Him all over the world uh, than us right this very moment that might see some of the things we see very differently. And guess what? They're still our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul taught us that there should be liberty in those issues that are not specifically or clearly addressed in Scripture. And when we see people in those such circumstances where there's a minor disagreement there, that they should be subject not to our directive, but to their own conscience. Now, I always want people to let me be subject to my own conscience. I am not often good at letting other people be subject to their own conscience. So y'all can just recognize you got a sinner in the pulpit and go on with your perfect lives. Amen? So this morning what we're going to do is we're actually going to... That was kind of an overview of last week. We're going to actually tackle this question from the other side of the equation. What do we do, not not when there's gray areas, but what do we do when a clear biblical directive is either being ignored or defied, literally defied? And what we're going to do is we're going to do that by looking at Isaiah's words in chapter 5 of his book of prophecy that Deborah read us today. And this side is what we in the church call discernment, knowing right and wrong, good and evil. The first five chapters of Isaiah, we read the tail end of that uh, this morning. The first five chapters of Isaiah constitute an indictment against the people of God, against the, the nation of Judah, God's people. And their biggest issue, according to this passage, was their inability to make a clear distinction. Let me let you in on a secret. The life of a disciple is all about making clear distinctions. And that's what this passage was all about. And because they couldn't make a clear distinction, it resulted in moral confusion in the nation. It resulted in separation from God. It resulted in a promise from multiple prophets of coming judgment, of coming wrath to be poured out on the people because they could not make a clear distinction. Let's read that first passage again. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What I want you to see here is that Isaiah is describing a people who have lost all sense of reality. 
They confuse good and evil, light and darkness, the bitter and the sweet. And my question to you is, is this just history or does this still happen today? Let me give you an example that's in our face all the time. For example, biology teaches us that there is an an obvious, a natural compatibility between the male and female of every species. But culture has come in with an agenda, and it said, it says now to us that that same compatibility somehow exists between the male and the male and the female and the female of the species. And what's happened, I want you to understand this, if you have any confidence in the teachings of Scripture, what's happened is that culture has reinvented biological reality. They basically said that what is clearly taught in the natural world is not reality. And so what's happened is, and we've experienced some of this here, that the church is under incredible pressure to deny God's clear commands which result in, get this, sexual flourishing. Did you know that? Did you know when you do it God's way... When you follow, stay within the lines of what God has commanded, your life actually flourishes. Did you know that? Pretty good to know, isn't it? And because we've denied that, we, we, we not only deny God's command for sexual flourishing, but we also deny the clear and obvious scientific realities of nature. And so now we're in a situation where men legally marry men, women marry women, and we talk in ter- when we talk about this, this, this denial of reality, we talk about it in terms of love and equality, which I want you to understand, in, in, in this particular situation, it, it, love and equality do not apply. Let me explain. I'm not saying we don't love people who are in in any sin. What I'm saying is this. The reason love doesn't apply is because the only way that I can love you effectively, and if we're Christians, this should not be a matter of disagreement among us, but the only way I can ever love you effectively is by living a life in submission to God's commands. Y'all awake this morning? Pinch your neighbor as hard as you can. Make sure, because this is good stuff and I want to make sure they're hearing it. So, so the only way that you can truly love another person is by living in submission to God's commands. And also, the, because love is a mutual thing, the only way that you can truly uh, uh, love another person is to call them into the same submission, invite them into the same submission to the same commands. So love, when we're talking about the defiance of how God has created and what God has commanded, love does not apply. It, it's, it can't be loving to, to, to rope somebody into a situation where they're not obeying God. Equality doesn't apply. All things are not created equal. Listen, I can go home today, I can pull a hammer out of my toolbox and try to saw a two-by-four in half. But the only thing that's going to happen is I'm going to be very disappointed and I will never accomplish the task. 
Love and equality, though very important issues, do not apply in this issue. Because here's what I want you to know. If you, if you need to go back to sleep and hear nothing else I say today, please hear this. What God creates, what God designs, what God commands is always best for the human race. And it is never, ever to their disadvantage to live in submission to what God has said. At every stage of creation, every single stage, God steps back, He takes a a survey of what He's created, and He says this, it's good. Everything He created. For any of us to second guess His creation, His designs, His commands, is the very act of calling evil good and good evil. So here we are, we're believers, most of you are believers this morning, and and the, the task at hand is to properly judge between good and evil, between light and darkness, between bitter and sweet. And and I've got good news for you, it's going to take a lot of pressure off. None of us are arbitrary judges of these things. None of us are. But thanks be to God, He has given us the Scriptures. He's given us the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And more than that, He's given us the fellowship of the church, all three of those things, to help us judge rightly. So Isaiah starts his passage today, Woe to those who call evil good, good evil. That word woe is a word of impending doom in the Bible. When someone says woe... Jesus does it a lot in Matthew 23. When someone says woe or pronounces a woe, it, it, he's saying that there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a pronouncement of impending doom. It basically means that the bill is about to come due. Judgment is not far away in this passage from those who either subvert or pervert the truth that God has revealed in the Bible. Now let me explain what I mean by subvert and pervert. To subvert truth means that you may study it, you may read it, you may know it, you may memorize it, you may quote it, and guess what? You may even preach it. But... When a closer examination is made, though you study, know, read, quote, memorize, preach, when a close examination is made, it's found that your life is a constant contradiction of that truth. Basically what I'm saying is that you fail to practice what is preached. And the one who subverts truth is a textbook hypocrite. The word literally means somebody who wears a mask. Paul Washer, I saw a quote online from him uh, yesterday that just talked about this very carefully. He said, some of you are complaining about wearing masks to churches, but you've been doing it for years. To which I responded, ouch. So that's to subvert the truth. But to pervert the truth is, is, is worse in ways. It's to flatly deny what God has said. Let me give you an example. In the garden, serpent shows up, says to Eve, what did God say? God said, Eve says to the serpent, God said, you shall not eat of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. Quote, said God. And the serpent looks right at Eve and says... You will not surely die. And that's to pervert 
the Word of God. It's, it's also not just to de- flatly deny it, but to twist God's Word to make it say something it doesn't. It's, it's what you see all the time on TV when prosperity preachers will cherry-pick select passages so that they can convince you that the Gospel is all about you experiencing massive amounts of health and wealth right now in this life, and yet they never remember that all through Scripture there are promises of suffering for all of God's people. So we can't subvert or pervert the the Word of God. We have to properly handle the Word of God. And the Bible says that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so what we've got to do is when we handle the Word, we cannot dull the edge of the sword by making judgments of ourselves and others and of the world around us according to a faulty standard or a mishandling of the truth we have. God warns us not to call good evil and evil good in our moral judgments, and we do that by celebrating what God has condemned or by tearing down what He has elevated. It's it's when believers are silent about the immorality or dishonesty of a preferred politician. Or it's when we justify theft of office supplies or time from work, and and we justify it because we say, we're just not being paid enough. It's when we slander others or when we gossip because we feel like we've been wronged by them. And so therefore, because we've been wronged by them, they deserve it. But let me remind you, all of the things I just described are prohibited by God. But it's so easy for us to pretend that we have some kind of connection, some kind of relationship with God that gives us a pass from what God has said. And we often say, well, yeah, I didn't get that quite right, but God knows my heart. I learned long ago that God knows my heart is not a defense, it's an indictment. God knows my heart is not a defense, it's an indictment. When you analyze the fact that God knows your heart, it should strike you with terror. Because you're right, God knows every secret thought. He knows every hidden motive. He knows everything about you. And so what I want you to understand, the gospel's message is, is not just that God knows your heart, so He's going to turn a blind eye to all your wickedness. What I want you to know is that God's intention from the start through Jesus Christ was to change your heart so that you would reflect the goodness that we see in Him. It's right there in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, da-da-da-da-da, and goodness. The fruit of the Spirit, the growth that happens, that is evidence that you're connected to the root, is goodness. But if we have no true concept of God's goodness, we can't live a life of goodness. And if we can't live a life of goodness... We become completely incapable of showing others the goodness of God for their own lives. One of the things that we think highly of as Christians is Jesus' last command, His great commission as we call it in Matthew 28. And a portion of that great commission was this, that we are to go into all the world and in Jesus' words, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. In other words, teach the people that we are leading into discipleship to obey what Jesus has commanded. 
And let me remind you that it's hard to be an effective teacher if your very life scoffs at the truth of what you claim to be teaching others. Is that a fair statement? And next, in this passage in Isaiah, God tells us not only not to confound good and evil, but light and darkness. Paul rhetorically asked the Corinthians, what fellowship has light with darkness? In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was speaking about this very principle of light and darkness. And he said this in Matthew 6.22, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now that sounds kind of cryptic. Let me see if I can explain it to you. Light and darkness, as you all know, basic biology again, is perceived by the eye. Jesus calls the eye the lamp of the body. And what he's saying is, listen, is that with these, with these organs in our head, what we gaze upon because we desire it will determine the level of light and darkness inside of us. It's what we're looking at, it's what we're staring at, it's what we're pursuing, it's what we are desiring that will determine how the, 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 the uh, uh, intensity of the light or the, dis- the despair of the darkness is in the very inside of us. We confuse light and darkness when we cast our eyes that God has prohibited in desire and we call it good. When we say that's good and God says it's not then we're we're filling our lives with darkness because we're casting our eyes to something that's dark. Millions of people, it's a plague at this point in our history. Millions of people do this every day, men and women with pornography. They look and they say, it's good, it'll satisfy me, it'll make me feel wanted, it'll make me feel loved, and it's not. It's flooding their souls with darkness. Others do it seemingly more simply and innocently by, by addictively going to the counter of the convenience stores and buying lottery tickets because their, their mind is always imagining how much better life would be if they could just win the big jackpot. They're gazing at something that has become an idol to them instead of just thanking God and trusting God and stewarding what God has given them. Jesus says, if your eye is bad, if your gaze is drawn away to things in which there is no light, your whole body, your whole life will be filled with great darkness. And as believers, as believers, I cannot stress the importance to all of us of setting those things before us which are full of light so that our life can be filled with light. you got to learn to avoid and help others to avoid whatever or whoever draws us away from what God has revealed is the source of His light. And then lastly, God calls us to determine sweet from bitter. Many times in the Bible, you've probably run into this, the Bible uh, says that tasting is synonymous. That, that sense of tasting is synonymous with experiencing God in a, in a uh, um, symbolic sense. 
Psalm 34 is a great uh, example of this that you're probably familiar with, where the psalmist exclaims, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The, the psalmist is saying, Do you want to be satisfied? This is where you get satisfied, by feasting on the goodness of the Lord. Jesus calls himself in John chapter 6, the bread of life, and he makes this promise. He says, whoever eats of this bread will never be hungry again. And yet, you and I both come time and time again, bib around their neck, knife and fork in hand, ready to feast on the table of the, of the world with the same thought, this will satisfy me, this will take away my hunger, this will, will, will fulfill me. But nothing, listen to me carefully, nothing that the world sets before you will ever ultimately satisfy. If you eat there, you're going to have to keep coming back to that table over and 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 over again. It's, it's not that it's delicacies. The delicacies of the world are just empty calories. But often they're poison. Eating at the, at the feasting at the table of the world is not just empty. It's not just meaningless. It's it's poison. This explains the woman who goes from one toxic relationship to another, always looking for the affirmation that is just out of her reach. It explains the man who, in the world's eyes, very successfully builds a career while he steamrolls the souls of his wife and children who are constantly denied his closeness. But it's not so with Jesus. It's not so with Jesus. Whoever eats this bread will never hunger again. When Mary is thanking God for choosing her to to carry and give birth to the Messiah. She writes this beautiful song of praise in Luke chapter 1. And I love this one single verse that says this. It says, He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, He sent away empty. If you think you've got what you need, you'll never come to Jesus. He'll never satisfy, but if you come hungry, if you say, Lord, I need you to satisfy my soul, he will send you away full. You will not be hungry anymore. Only Christ can satisfy the deep craving of your soul. And what a joy when you discover that. So uh, our next question would be, why? Why do we confuse good and evil, light and darkness, sweet and bitter? And and Isaiah answers that. He he pronounces a second woe. He says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. The second woe, Isaiah is declaring, he's saying there's a a woe, an impending destruction to those who are self-confident in their own wisdom and cleverness. We can't discern reality simply because we have too much confidence in our own mental and spiritual resources. Some of you need to really pay attention to that. We can't discern reality because we have too much confidence in our own spiritual and mental resources. We've made a habit of looking into heaven and and saying to the God who created everything, who sits on the throne and say, I got this. No, you don't. 
You're going to get this, but you don't got it. You don't got it. You need something more than anything you bring to the, to the equation. It's a terrible thing, listen to me, to try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps before a holy God only to look down and discover you have no boots. And that's where we're all at. God did not save you. I want to tell you three things about God and how He saved you. God did not save you, I say this all the time, by some decision you made. Let's warm this place up a little bit. I said God did not save you by a decision you made. Instead, what God did is He saved you because He knew that what you really needed was to die to your own lofty opinion of yourself and live to Him. And this acknowledgement in that saving transaction is called Lordship. It's when I look into heaven and I say, Oh, I just realized something. He's in charge and I'm not. He's the one who is who has got this all figured out and who's making it work, and I'm not. Lordship is knowing who's in charge. But secondly, God did not save you so that you could figure out how to be a better you. God's saving grace through the cross of Jesus Christ is not a self-improvement program. It's a self-denying, self-death, self-crucifixion program is what it is. He didn't, he's not trying to help you figure out how to be a better you. What he's done is he's gifted you his word and his spirit to show you the only path in which you are to ever really find life. And lastly... Though we love to sing of the sweet by and by, God did not save you to an afterlife. I'm not saying there's not an afterlife. There certainly is. But that is not why God saved you. God didn't save you to put you in the hopper to send you to heaven someday. God right now saved you into a body, into a church, because He knows that you need a community of other people who love you and who will spur you on to love and good deeds. We cannot come to Jesus bragging about who we are and what we can do and what a great deal he got by saving us. Jesus says those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus explains what he means. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Listen to me carefully. God did not seek you out because of your skill. He sought you out because of your sin. Your resume means absolutely nothing to him. You never, ever, ever want to sit across a table in a job interview with God. He created angels. He don't need you. But God is only worth anything to people who come to Him empty, hungry, needy, helpless, and broken. And furthermore, there's one more woe. God pronounces woe on those with wildly misplaced and dishonoring God-dishonoring priorities. He says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. 
valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a, a, a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. The first group, those who heroes at drinking wine, etc., they have a reputation they don't deserve. Listen to me. Think about the words there. Heroes and the valiant are not known as such because of their hard drinking, but because they defend the helpless, because they work justice for the oppressed. And the second group, this bribery group and depriving the innocent group, they, they claim to be shrewd because they use their position to line the pot, their own pockets to the detriment of the poor and the needy in the land. But God, looking at all of this, is not impressed or fooled. Micah 6.8, very familiar passage. He's, he says this and he explains what God is looking for. Not heroes at drinking wine or those who can, who can swindle the poor out of a bribe. He says, he's told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The praise of man, no matter, no matter what weird activities can get you the praise of man in this life, let me just remind you that the praise of man has absolutely no standing with God. God does not select anybody from the results of a popularity contest. So what do we, how do we tie this all together? You and I must learn to rightly judge or discern our own ways. Pastor David talked about this in his prayer. And when we do this, there are four ways in which we've got to do this. We've got to do this constantly. We've got to do it gravely. We've got to do it humbly. And we've got to do it prayerfully. But we also have to, have to help our brothers and sisters around us to see when they're straying from God's best. And we do that in the same four ways, constantly, gravely, humbly, and prayerfully. We have to remind others to, to pursue after God constantly. We can never stop helping others to see when they're missing all that Christ has provided for them through the cross. We may be hesitant because we've been told so many times, don't judge. But the Bible says this, in James chapter 5, verse 19, he says, My brothers, listen carefully, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We have got to constantly be helping people return to the truth of Jesus. And we have to do it gravely. That means seriously, so, uh, soberly. God told Ezekiel, I said this a few weeks ago, but I wanted to remind you again. God told Ezekiel that if he failed to warn the sinful of the consequences of their way, that they would, in fact, die in their sin, but God would require their blood at Ezekiel's hand. Someone's eternal destiny... If we turn a blind eye to their stumbling, to their waywardness, to their sin, someone's eternal destiny is no light matter to God, and it should not be a light matter to us. Thirdly, we must do it humbly. Everybody listen up carefully, because this is going to be the rule around here from here on out, okay? None of us are God's appointed law enforcement. If you come and try to be that, I'm going to say, show me your badge. 
None of us are God's appointed law enforcement. So what that means is, yes, we're going to have occasions to help our our stumbling brothers and sisters. But when we do, when we help our brothers and sisters who are stumbling, we should do it with the knowledge that the next time it might just be us. No one in this room is qualified to to, uh, drag another sinner away from his stumbling if you're not willing to be dragged away from your own. And that goes for me too. These times when we're able to help others should never help. It should never make us feel like we're superior to others, but they should help us realize how deeply all of us need each other in our lives. And lastly, we have to do it prayerfully. James says this also, another passage from James, just a few verses earlier. He says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. A lot of times there's a lot of emphasis, and rightfully so, placed on confession in the, in the, the church. And it's very important to have the humility necessary to confess our sins. But confessing is only half of what we're commanded to do. We're also commanded to pray for each other for the very purpose that we may be healed. And that healing in that passage, by the context, has nothing to do with physical healing. I believe in physical healing, but it's nothing to do with that. What it's saying is, so that the damage wrought in our souls by sin will be healed. That's why we confess to each other. That's why we pray for each other. So we have to be willing to examine ourselves. And speak up to others because the stakes, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the stakes are very, very high. There are many who are convinced, if you ask them, that they belong to Christ. And yet they make excuse after excuse for all their unholy behavior. But I want you to remember that the only real evidence that any of you have that you belong to Christ is a constantly changing life. It's the only evidence that the fruit of the Spirit I mentioned earlier is growing in your life, that you're becoming more rooted in Christ, that you're becoming transformed from glory to glory into His image. Now notice I'm not talking about perfection. None of us are going to reach that in this life. But I'm talking about the transformation it takes. Listen, I have been saved now for 30 some odd years, and and sometimes the, the process, the progress, seems very slow. But there is progress. And look at your own life and ask yourself, seriously, with a hard examination, are you progressing towards Christ? Are you progressing in holiness? For the people that that blow this off and are, are satisfied with some prayer they said somewhere, sometime, only a fearful judgment awaits. It's what... Isaiah said, he said, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down into the flame. You guys have all seen that when, when something dry just catches fire and just it almost evaporates it because the fire is so hot. He says, So their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. Think about what that's saying. Some of us like to brag in our blossoms, but you got rotten roots. Rotten, stinking roots. 
And what I'm telling you right now is if you'll come and throw yourself on the mercy of a God who is holy and who loves you, God will give you a healthy root and his name is Jesus. God will not be mocked. He will not be fooled by our religious professions or our occasional good deeds. The only way to be saved at the very last is to put your trust in Jesus' death for you on the cross and never, ever boast in or take confidence in your own goodness. Then and only then can we live in the power of His resurrection and overcome this world even as He did. Our only proof... So I said earlier that we have so trusted in Christ is a consistently changing life. I don't care if you're five years old or 500 years old. Your life needs to be constantly growing into the image of Christ. We want a life that looks more and more like Jesus' life. And to live any other way and call it Christianity, call it belief, call it discipleship, is to blatantly reject Not just what God said, but God himself. No matter what we say with our lips. What we say with our lips matters very little. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but what does God look on? The heart. God looks on the heart. And that's what Isaiah closes this passage we read this morning. He says, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and they've despised the word of the holy God of Israel. This is what Isaiah prophesied about to people who failed to judge or discern themselves rightly. And though we talk today about discerning situations in other people's lives, let me just clarify again. If you're not judging yourself rightly, you have no hope of judging anybody else rightly. Your your judgments against others are actually invalidated by your, your hypocrisy. And so... This is the day, this is the hour when we say, God, search us, know us. David prayed that in the Psalms. He said, search me, God, and know if there's any wicked way in me. God, where have I called good, evil, and evil, good? Where have I put light for darkness and darkness for light? Where have I confused and confounded both the sweet and the bitter? It takes courage to ask yourself that question. And courage... To open the spiritual ears that God has given you to hear the answer. Encourage to bow before a holy God and say, Lord, change me. Lord, I repent of this thing that I have failed to judge rightly in my own life. And I ask you to deliver me from the power of sin and death in my own life. Would you stand with me? We have no better example of any of this of the depths of our own need for judgment than the cross of Jesus Christ because a right understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ tells us that everything that he happened to him on that awful day that he was arrested that he was mocked that he was spit upon that his beard was pulled out that he was he was uh, whipped Uh, to near death and a crown of thorns was placed on his head that he carried the cross that he was eventually crucified on, nailed to and hung naked for all to see that that was not the punishment of Jesus. It was your punishment and Jesus took it.
And what if if your sin is so ugly that it results in such a death for such a holy God? How can we welcome it? How can we make it comfortable within our own lives? How? How must God see that when we, when we justify and make excuses and, and make a way and, and clear out some space in our lives for things that killed Jesus Christ? And His death on the cross... Though it was our sin, though it was our guilt that that caused him to suffer all that, for those who would repent of, of sin and believe in his name, it resulted in life for all of those. And Jesus called it this. He called it life more abundantly. It wasn't just a life that, that you know, kind of turns things around. It's a life that is the life that you were always seeking in those other things. It's the life you've always wanted. And there are people here today who do not know Jesus Christ in that way. Now, you say, but yeah, like I said earlier, I, I prayed this prayer years ago. And, and I've, I've you know, come to church fairly frequently and I do good religious deeds. Listen, that's not at all what I'm talking about. I am talking about this morning, maybe for the very first time, looking to Christ and saying, I am coming to you with absolutely nothing. And I'm looking to you because you have everything. And what I have, I want to give to you, Jesus, my nothing. And what you have, I want you to give to me, your everything. So if I'm talking to you today, you might be getting your heart beat, might be racing just a little bit. And I want you to be at ease. I'm not going to make you... Make a big show in front of anybody. But what I want to ask you to do is right now, right where you stand, in your own words, you don't need me to write a script for you. Will you just acknowledge that you have nothing, that Jesus has everything, and that you need him? Will you just reach out to him by faith right now? And the Bible says that if anyone comes to him, he will in no way cast them out. So the promise for you this morning is if you will place your trust in Jesus Christ, If you will give him your life, I don't care how tattered, how broken, how empty and meaningless it might look, if you'll give it to him, he will take you as his own. He will adopt you as his child. He will make you an heir of his kingdom. And so right now, just just right now, just, just to make it easier for those that might need to do this, everybody bow your heads just for a minute. And just take your time. Now, I'm looking around. Every single head in here is bowed. And if you just want to to acknowledge that you're praying that prayer so that I I can pray for you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to make a scene with you. But would you just slip up a hand real high so I can see it? Awesome. Anyone else? Awesome. So I want you right now as you're praying, I don't want you to make any promises to God. I don't want you to say, God, if you save me, I'll be this or I'll do that. I I want you to just say, God, I don't even know where to start and I'm coming to you and I'm trusting that you're good enough to save me. I'm trusting that you are, that your your strength and your power and your blood is, is... uh, big enough to wash me from the, the, the darkest sins, the things that I would cringe if anybody in this room knew about, is big enough to wash me of those. 
And so, Lord, I can't promise you anything, but if you will take me right now, I'm giving you what I've got. And I acknowledge that that's nothing. And the Lord will trade you your life for his. The Bible says this wonderful verse. It says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, he had no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of Christ. And so if you will right now give God your sin, you'll get his righteousness. And if you raise your hand, if you prayed that prayer, I want to ask one more favor. Very discreetly after church, will you come talk to me? That's, that's, the, that's the closing thing on this because someone needs to know, someone needs to celebrate with you that you gave your heart to Jesus this morning. So let's do that. For the rest of you, I want to just, this, this grace we've been talking about with those that have just um, prayed that prayer, we've been talking about this grace, and God, in his infinite wisdom, gave us a, a symbol, a, 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 a kind of a, a, an element, a, a couple of elements to, to remind us, those of us who have been saved, just what it means uh, that he did for us. And that is the cup and the bread of the, of the Lord's table. And so we're going to take it together, but I want to invite you to just come right now and, and uh, partake of these elements, grab these elements, and then we'll, we'll take them together. But, um, man, God is doing something here this morning. People are turning to Jesus, and I want you to just um, prepare your hearts to really take this in gratitude for the grace that you may have received decades ago. Some of you minutes ago, some of you, uh, you know, years ago. But just let's begin to, to thankfully uh, partake of what God has done. Or what Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthian church about what this means. And he says to them, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said this, this is my body, which is for you. Now think about that. We talked about things that we judge in ourselves. And Jesus said, look, my body is whole. It's perfect. Nothing wrong with it. There's no, it's never been tainted by sin. And he took that symbol of his body and he broke it. And he said, this is for you. This brokenness is for you. And he said, take it and eat it. For this is in, and do this in remembrance of me. Let's take his, this element of his body. Father, thank you for the broken body of Jesus. Thank you for the wholeness and completeness that it provides for us. Thank you for the broken life that provides abundant life for us. We give you thanks. Lord, let us walk today in the remembrance of when you redeemed us so that we will be constantly drawn to thankfulness of you. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All through the Old Testament, there are prescriptions of the death penalty for those who do very, very wicked things. Blood was required to be spilled. And Jesus, who had never sinned, stood, on, stood before the whole world, submitted to the cross, and poured out his blood as a replacement for ours. 
even though he was righteous and we were wicked. And so let's take this cup and give thanks for the cleansing of his blood. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have washed us clean by the blood of Jesus. And that though, Lord, still we stumble, still we wander, still we stray, Lord, we have not been forgotten by you and we have not been uh, given over to the darkness, Lord God. But you are even this morning calling many of us to repentance, calling us to return to the place where we call, ev- where we call uh, evil, evil and good, good. Where we keep light in its proper place and darkness in its proper place. Where we keep a distinction between the sweet and the bitter. And we thank you that that would not be possible without the blood of Jesus poured out for us. And so we thank you for your blood. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to proclaim a benediction of God's grace over you. And Paul says this to the Romans. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. You're dismissed.